Section 11 of History of Egypt, Volume 1, by Gaston Maspero, read for LibriVox.org, into the public domain. Chapter 2. The Gods of Egypt, Part 3. If Ra was held to be a grasshopper under the old empire, it was because he flew far up in the sky like the clouds of locusts driven from Central Africa, which suddenly fall upon the fields and ravage them. Most of the Nile gods, Kanumu, Osiris, Harshafiti, were incarnate in the form of a ram or of a buck. Does not the masculine vigor and procreative rage of these animals naturally point them out as fitting images of the life-giving Nile and the overflowing of its waters? It is easy to understand how the neighborhood of a marsh or of a rock-encumbered rapid should have suggested the crocodile as supreme deity to the inhabitants of the Fayum or of the Ambos. The crocodiles there multiplied so rapidly as to constitute a serious danger. There they had the mastery, and could be appeased only by means of prayers and sacrifices. When instinctive terror had been superseded by reflection, and some explanation was offered of the origin of the various cults, the very nature of the animal seemed to justify the veneration with which it was regarded. The crocodile is amphibious, and Subku was supposed to be a crocodile, because before the creation the sovereign god plunged recklessly into the dark waters and came forth to form the world as the crocodile emerges from the river to lay its eggs upon the bank. Most of the feudal divinities began their lives in solitary grandeur, apart from, and often hostile, to their neighbors. Families were assigned to them later. Each appropriated two companions and formed a trinity, or, as it is generally called, a triad. But there were several kinds of triads. In nomes subject to a god, the local deity was frequently content with one wife and one son, but often he was united to two goddesses, who were at once his sisters and his wives, according to the national custom. Thus thought of Hermopolis possessed himself of a harem consisting of Seshet-Seik-Habitui and Hamuit. Tumu derived the homage of the inhabitants of Heliopolis with Nebthopit and with Eosuit. Knumu seduced and married the two fairies of the neighboring cataract, Anukit the constrainer, who compresses the Nile between its rocks at Philae and at Syene, and Satit, the archeress, who shoots forth the current straight and swift as an arrow. Where a goddess reigned over a nome, the triad was completed by two male deities, a divine consort and a divine son. Neat of Sais had taken for her husband Osiris of Mendes, and borne for him a lion's whelp, Ari Hosnofor. Hathor of Dendera had completed her household with Haroris and a younger Horus, with the epithet of Ahi, he who strikes the sistrum. A triad containing two goddesses produced no legitimate offspring, and was unsatisfactory to a people who regarded the lack of progeny as a curse from heaven. One in which the presence of a son promised to ensure the perpetuity of the race was more in keeping with the idea of a blessed and prosperous family, as that of God should be. Triads of the former kind were therefore almost everywhere broken up into two new triads, each containing a divine father, a divine mother, and a divine son. Two fruitful households arose from the barren union of thought with Safketabui and Namahuit, one composed of thought, Safketabui and Harnabi, the golden sparrowhawk, into the other, Namahuit and her nursling Norfirhiru entered. The persons united with the old feudal divinities in order to form triads were not all of the same class. Goddesses especially were made to order, and might often be described as grammatical, 
so obvious is the linguistic device to which they owe their being. From Ra, Ammon, Horus, Sabku, female Ra's, Anians, Horuses, and Sabkus were derived. By the addition of the regular feminine affects to the primitive masculine names, Ra'it, Ammonit, Horit, Sabkit. In the same way, detached cognomens of divine fathers were embodied in divine sons. Imhatpu, he who comes in peace, was merely one of the epithets of Ptah before he became incarnate as the third member of the Memphite triad. In other cases, alliances were contracted between divinities of ancient stock, but natives of different nomes, as in the case of Isis of Buto and the Mendesian Osiris, of Herorus of Edfu and Hathor of Dendera. In the same manner, Socket of Latopolis and Bastit of Bubastis were appropriated as wives to Ptah of Memphis, Nofirtimu being represented as his son by both unions. These improvised connections were generally determined by considerations of vicinity. The gods of coterminous principalities were married as the children of kings of two adjoining kingdoms are married, to form or consolidate relations, and to establish bonds of kinship between rival powers, whose unremitting hostility would mean the swift ruin of entire people. The system of triads, begun in primitive times and continued unbrokenly up to the last days of Egyptian polytheism, far from any way lowering the prestige of the feudal gods, was rather the means of enhancing it in the eyes of the multitude. Powerful lords, as the newcomers might be at home, it was only in the strength of an auxiliary title that they could enter a strange city, and then only on condition of submitting to its religious law. Hathor, supreme at Dendera, shrank into insignificance before Herorus at Edfu, and there retained only the somewhat subordinate part of a wife in the house of her husband. On the other hand, Herorus, when at Dendera, descended from the supreme rank, and was nothing more than the almost useless consort of the Lady Hathor. His name came first in invocations of the triad because of his position therein as husband and father, but this was simply a concession to the propriety of etiquette, and even though named in second place, Hathor was none the less the real chief of Dendera and of its divine family. Thus the principal personage in any triad was always the one who had been patron of the nome previous to the introduction of the triad, in some places the father-god, and in others the mother-goddess. The son in a divine triad had of himself but limited authority. When Isis and Osiris were his parents, he was generally an infant Horus, naked or simply adorned with necklaces and bracelets, a thick lock of hair depending from his temple, and his mother squatting on her heels, or as sitting, nursed him upon her knees, offering him her breast. Even in triads where the son was supposed to have attained to man's estate, he held the lowest place, and there was enjoined upon him the same respectful attitude towards his parents, as is observed by children of human race in the presence of theirs. He took the lowest place at all solemn receptions, spoke only with his parents' permission, acted only by their command and as the agent of their will. Occasionally he was vouchsafed a character of his own, and filled a definite position, as at Memphis, where Imhotpu was the patron of science. But generally he was not considered as having either office or marked individuality. His being was but a feeble reflection of his father's, and possessed neither life nor power except as derived from him. Two such contiguous personalities must needs have been confused, and as a matter of fact, were so confused as to become at length nothing more than two aspects of the same God, who united in his own person degrees of relationship 
mutually exclusive of each other in a human family. Father, inasmuch as he was the first member of the triad, son, by virtue of being its third member, identical with himself in both capacities, he was at once his own father, his own son, and the husband of his mother. Gods like men might be resolved into at least two elements, soul and body, but in Egypt the conception of the soul varied in different times and in different schools. It might be an insect, butterfly, bee, or praying mantis, or a bird, the ordinary sparrowhawk, the human-headed sparrowhawk, a heron, or a crane, by, high, whose wings enabled it to pass rapidly through space, or the black shadow, kaibit, that is attached to everybody, but which death sets free, and which thenceforward leads an independent existence, so that it can move about at will, and go out into the open sunlight. Finally, it might be a kind of light shadow, like a reflection from the surface of calm water, or from a polished mirror, the living and colored projection of the human figure, a double ka, reproducing in minutest detail the complete image of the object or the person to whom it belonged. The soul, the shadow, the double of a god, was in no way essentially different from the soul, shadow, or double of a man. His body, indeed, was molded out of a more rarefied substance, and generally invisible, but endowed with the same qualities, and subject to the same imperfections as ours. The gods, therefore, on the whole, were more ethereal, stronger, more powerful, better fitted to command, to enjoy, and to suffer than ordinary men, but they were still men. They had bones, muscles, flesh, blood. They were hungry and ate, they were thirsty and drank. Our passions, griefs, joys, infirmities were also theirs. The Sa, a mysterious fluid, circulated throughout their members, and carried with it health, vigor, and life. They were not all equally charged with it. Some had more, others less, their energy being in proportion to the amount which they contained. The better supplied willingly gave of their superfluity to those who lacked it, and all who could readily transmit it to mankind, this transfusion being easily accomplished in the temples. The king, or any ordinary man who wished to be thus impregnated, presented himself before the statue of the god, and squatted at its feet with his back towards it. The statue then placed its right hand upon the nape of his neck, and by making passes, caused the fluid to flow from it, and to accumulate in him as a receiver. This rite was of temporary efficacy only, and required frequent renewal in order that its benefit might be maintained. By using or transmitting it, the gods themselves exhausted their saw of life, and the less vigorous replenished themselves from the stronger, while the latter went to draw fresh fullness from a mysterious pond in the northern sky, called the Pond of the Saw. Divine bodies, continually recruited by the influx of this magic fluid, preserved their vigor far beyond the term allotted to the bodies of men and beasts. Age, instead of quickly destroying them, hardened and transformed them into precious metals. Their bones were changed to silver, their flesh to gold. Their hair, piled up and painted blue after the manner of great chiefs, was turned into lapis lazuli. This transformation of each into an animated statue did not altogether do away with the ravages of time. Decrepitude was no less irremediable with them as with men, although it came to them more slowly. When the sun had grown old, his mouth trembled, his driveling ran down to the earth, his spittle dropped upon the ground. None of the feudal gods had escaped this destiny. For them, as for mankind, the day came when they must leave the city and go forth to the tomb. The ancients long refused to believe that death was natural and inevitable. 
they thought that life, once began, might go on indefinitely. If no accident stopped it short, why should it cease of itself? And so men did not die in Egypt, they were assassinated. The murderer often belonged to this world, and was easily recognized as another man, an animal, some inanimate object such as a stone loosened from a hillside, a tree which fell upon the passer-by and crushed him. But too often the murderer was of the unseen world, and so was hidden, his presence being betrayed in his malignant attacks only. He was a god, an evil spirit, a disembodied soul who slyly insinuated itself into the living man, or fell upon him with irresistible violence, illness being a struggle between the one possessed and the power which possessed him. As soon as the former succumbed he was carried away from his own people, and his place knew him no more. But had all ended for him with the moment which he had ceased to breathe? As to the body, no one was ignorant of its natural fate. It quickly fell into decay, and a few years sufficed to reduce it to a skeleton. And as for the skeleton, in the lapse of centuries that too was disintegrated, and became a mere train of dust, to be blown away by the first breath of wind. The soul might have a longer career and fuller fortunes, but these were believed to be dependent upon those of the body, and commensurate with them. Every advance made in the process of decomposition robbed the soul of some part of itself. Its consciousness gradually faded until nothing was left, but a vague and hollow form that vanished altogether, when the corpse had entirely disappeared. From an early date the Egyptians endeavored to arrest this gradual destruction of the human organism, and their first effort to this end naturally was directed towards the preservation of the body, since without it the existence of the soul could not be ensured. It was imperative that during that last sleep, which for them was fraught with such terrors, the flesh should neither become decomposed nor turn to dust, that it should be free from offensive odor and secure from predatory worms. They set to work, therefore, to discover how to preserve it. The oldest burials which have as yet been found prove that these early inhabitants were successful in securing the permanence of the body for a few decades only. When one of them died, his son or his nearest relative carefully washed the corpse in water impregnated with an astringent or aromatic substance, such as natron or some solution of fragrant gums, and then fumigated it with burning herbs and perfumes, which were destined to overpower, at least temporarily, the odor of death. Having taken these precautions, they placed the body in the grave, sometimes entirely naked, sometimes partially covered with its ordinary garments, or sewn up in a closely fitting gazelle skin. The dead man was placed on his left side, lying north and south with his face to the east, in some cases on the bare ground, in others on a mat, a strip of leather or a fleece, in the position of a child in the fetal state. The knees were sharply bent at an angle of forty-five degrees, with the thighs, while the latter were either at right angles with the body, or drawn up so as almost to touch the elbows. The hands are sometimes extended in front of the face, sometimes the arms are folded and the hands are joined on the breast or neck. In some instances the legs are bent upward in such a fashion that they almost lie parallel with the trunk. The deceased could only be made to assume this position by a violent effort, and in many cases the tendons and the flesh had to be cut to facilitate the operation. The dryness of the ground selected for these burial places retarded the corruption of the flesh for a long time, it is true, but only retarded it, and so did not prevent the soul from being finally destroyed. End of section 11. Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.